Hiya, and welcome to Sensational, the Special Educational Needs Podcast. My name is Rikaya Desai, and I'm the Marketing Officer for With a Slack Group. Today, I'll be hosting our session, which will focus on supporting social tolerance for socially sensitive kids. For those of you who are first-time listeners um, to this podcast, it's all about offering advice and support to parents and carers of neurodiverse children, as well as celebrating those things that make us all different and recognising the amazing achievements of families across the country. Now, I'm delighted to welcome our speaker to the podcast today, Anne-Marie Harrison from Ideas Afresh Education. Anne-Marie has been a wonderful speaker for With a Slap Group for a number of years now, and it's lovely to have her joining me today. So welcome to the podcast, Anne-Marie. Thank you. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. I'm always thrilled to work in partnership with with a slack i think you've got a lovely um ethos and family focus so thank you for inviting me thank you we think the same um, of you as well now i know i've given a bit of an introduction there um but would you like to say a little uh, something about yourself and tell us about your work yeah i'm basically um a freelance trainer so i deliver um sessions and uh, one-to-one family visits and also virtual courses for families and professionals who are in any way working, supporting, living or um, caring for um, young people who have a neurodiverse um, profile and way of understanding the world. And they may or may not have a diagnosis Lots of my experience was working for um, the National Autistic Society for 15 years, and I still do some um, subcontract training for them, and I do um, subcontract training, obviously, for yourselves and for um, sort of Aspire groups and um, various other organisations. So I'm always really um, excited to be knowing that um, hopefully there's going to be parents tuning in because I've had so much experience of working with families And um, I think the important thing is that that doesn't make me um, a kind of know know all of everything or or an expert um, particularly, but it makes me very experienced. And um, I love the fact that I can draw on that. But I also love the fact that I continue to learn whatever family I meet and I work with. They teach me as much as I teach them. That's great. It's safe to say that you know your stuff. So <laughs> let's get started and talk about um, supporting social tolerance for socially sensitive kids. Okay, to start, um, I think the first place um, is to explain our topic today so everyone is clear about what we'll be discussing. Um, and Marie, can you tell us what do we mean when we say supporting social tolerance? It seems a bit of a mouthful, doesn't it, really, Rikaya? But I think basically what we're trying to um, sort of cover today is really looking at ways that we can nurture and support our children, not just um, tolerating social uh, demands of school, of family life, but in some ways looking at how we can actually hopefully light a flame for them to be enthusiastic about participating, about being um, involved in social um, activities, remembering that any one other person in your company is, in fact, a socially demanding um, experience. 
that's wonderful. Thank you. So moving on, we know social communication and being sociable can be difficult for our neurodiverse children. So how can we teach social tolerance? And it's that kind of million dollar question, isn't it? Which, you know, with many, many of our questions, there's never any one answer. But I think the kind of um, sort of best way forward in teaching that um, tolerance, teaching that almost you know, wanting that desire to be participating, to be involved, is to first of all do lots of modelling. So when we are involved in a social interaction, be it just with one other person in the family or if we're going out somewhere, you know, talking through and maybe being a little bit more apparent about the emotional um, situation we might be feeling or the plans we've put in place to be able to cope with that particular situation. So basically lighting that curiosity and interest and, you know, exposing our children to social situations, but within their capabilities. So remembering the stage, not age rule. And I think that's really important because there seems to be a lot of shoulds around social expectations. You know, he should sit at the table for dinner. Um, you know, he should be sitting or, you know, waiting for registration. And I think, you know, I kind of, my immediate response to that is, well, why should he? And who says he should? You know, is it not OK to stand or is it OK just to join for the ice cream at the mealtime? Because, you know, what is it we're trying to achieve here? If we're socially nurturing our children, then we've got to do that gently and we've got to do that within their capabilities and, um, you know, set them up to succeed. And I think, you know, I've had lots of families where birthday parties and I think for some reason there seems to be lots of babies born around this year and I'm getting lots of information about sort of parties and and almost um, kind of the challenge of, of attending a birthday party and, and the you know, parents want their children to be invited, but then they're anxious about how that's going to be. And so maybe just considering our social stage, are we at the social stage where actually just going and handing a gift over and collecting, um, you know, your little party bag and your birthday cake is enough? Or would you cope with blowing the candles out and being present for that bit and then bringing your child away? is often much more comfortable than turning up at the party and feeling it's too much, everyone's overwhelmed and everyone comes away feeling a bit deflated. So, you know, going for the end of the party rather than beginning, working within our social stage, not age. That's some really, really interesting stuff and things that I know I wouldn't have considered. So um, thanks for that. So how does um, what we see, hear or even smell affect us and perhaps inhibit um, our understanding of social, sorry, inhibit our understanding of social situations and how we cope with the social world around us? And I think that's a really good point, Rakai, because when we think about it, what we're talking about here is the challenges of sensory processing in terms of coping with the social situation as well. And of course, it's so important when we are nurturing our children 
in social tolerance and in fact in hopefully social desire to to participate we need to be very holistic and we need to have that awareness of the fact that that sensory processing system is going to be playing a huge part and in many cases may well be inhibiting or even advancing that um, desire to be part of a social um, situation. So it may be, um, you know, a, a couple of examples that sort of just share that um, holistic approach would be um, a recently uh, met a family and the little boy is a very sensitive um, with his hearing. He's got hypersensitive hearing and he can hear the body noises of everybody that, um, you know, is around him. And he finds that quite distressing and um, quite distracting. And, uh, you know, his mum told me that when he sits at the table, he wants to be there and he wants to be with the family. So he's got that social desire to participate. But once he's at the table, he's so upset by the noises of everybody chewing and swallowing and even heartbeats and lung expansions he can hear and so that family actually got him quite a, a um, hefty pair of ear defenders and it's made him much more able to tolerate the um, social setting of the family table so sometimes just being aware of how the senses are actually impacting on our social inclusion is really important. And I know um, I was speaking to a teacher recently and she was telling me about um, a little girl in year 10, a young lady in year 10, who um, was really keen to be um, participating and involved in the drama group. But unfortunately, they'd moved the drama club to a, an, a second floor of the school and uh, she couldn't tolerate the steps because she felt like when she looked at the steps it felt as if they were moving and so you know that was like one of those situations where we're sort of thinking right well we've got to do something to accommodate this to support this um young lady and still being able to participate because we don't want to miss out on the club that she wants to be in but at the same time, we want to give her the tools to cope, personal tools. So a bit like the ear defenders, is there something visually that we can do for her to help her? And, you know, the teacher was great. And they said, well, there's no reason. There's definitely a room on the ground floor. We can move the club, which is fabulous. I think accommodating on one hand is really important. But then also we can't just do that and not give personal tools and equip our um, children our students with those personal ways of managing situations as well it's good and um, really good stuff and um, really good examples that you're given as well so we're able to understand it in context so um many parents mentioned that their child doesn't understand social boundaries can you give us some examples of when a child or young person might find themselves in social distress and the what advice would you offer to parents and carers when this happens i think it's really common um Rakai, for many of our children to um sort of find themselves in i suppose we gently term it sort of social trouble and when we think about um the underlying profile of 
are neurodiverse children, there's likely um, to be some issues around understanding intent, around decoding some of the the behaviours and friendship groups that um, our children find themselves involved in. And when we think about um, sort of our, um, you know, empathy and we think in terms of our emotional empathy and also our cognitive empathy that they are actually two different things and if you've not kind of mastered the cognitive empathy and the way of um, sort of decoding people's intentions um, and not just wanting to be their friend because of um, instructions they're giving. And I, I kind of am leading towards a story of a year seven boy recently who had got into trouble for lifting um, or shoplifting Kit Kats on the request of his friends. And I, I think, um, you know, it's that that's that value of us almost trying to be one step ahead and sort of coaching in regards to almost sort of um, coaching a football team, you're putting that amount of time and energy and commitment into supporting our children to understand about how we pay for things, that, you know, we're spending and earning money, the whole process of that. So we, what I'm saying really here is that we may need to overteach and teach earlier than perhaps we would do peers of a similar age. So almost giving more social information at an earlier age. Great. So um, can you explain why a child who is academ- academically very able could get flustered or trip over themselves when asked to join in with something like a football game? It's so hard, isn't it, when we have these um, hopes and aspirations for our children to be involved in in little um, sort of activities and team games and things like that. But when we sort of take a step back from that and we think in terms of that nurturing and modelling and practising and teaching the rules, these groups can actually be very helpful as an opportunity to do that. So maybe like a little football club or something like that. But of course, within that, there's a lot of social rules and many of our children have um, literal understanding. So if someone, you know, shouts across the pitch, keep your eye on the ball, I, I know a little boy that actually would pick the ball up and literally physically put his eye on the ball. And of course, then it, we're kind of in that arena of some of our children may be aware of the response of others so try and sort of laugh it off and and sort of you know make a bit of a joke of it but other children might be very distressed and not really know well, well what's gone wrong what 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 did I do wrong yeah. and so they're left in that sort of state of confusion so I think you know the answer to that really is why why are they because of all the profile that we've talked about the social um, difficulty, the challenges in in understanding our social world, which is huge. That social rule book, we all get wrong sometimes. So, but I think don't shy away from those clubs if it is what our children want to do, but let's find a good position for them. Maybe goalie, you know, might be a good position so that we are sort of using our children's skills, but also continuing with that nurturing and coaching in our social world. 
It's great. So have you ever had any success using visuals to teach social understanding? And it's a great question because lots of families um, will use visuals for the very sort of obvious things. And I, I kind of want to um, sort of walk around with a slogan sometimes saying, mm. um, you know, schedules are not just for Christmas and visuals are not just for Christmas. You know, visuals are for all situations, all of the time, all year round. And so the answer is yes. Visuals can be great for teaching social information in a very sort of neurodiverse, friendly way. Because, again, lots of practice, lots of modelling, and then that visual sort of important information. We can introduce things like a weight card. And sometimes for our children, having something physical to hold and hand over can be enough to sort of just calm their system, calm their central nervous system because it's giving a different focus to just the social um, tension that perhaps is being experienced while they are waiting in a line or or waiting in a queue and the same can be applied to change you know if we can give a a change card or a, a physical thing if we're waiting you know um for the kettle to boil if it's an, an older uh, teenager you know getting them to kind of get the tea in the um cup rather than sort of just waiting and um, sort of not doing something to take the social pressure off the situation as well. Great. So um, there's an element of pressure on parents and carers to sign children up to various clubs and extracurricular activities like dance and football, um, because that's what, what everyone is doing now that everything is opening um, back up again. In your opinion, do you think it's a good idea for socially sensitive children to be joining these clubs? I think it's a little bit like we just mentioned about the football um, team and the football club. Yeah. I think um, I kind of always say sometimes, you know, you need your red triangle out, you need your caution, and we need to be thinking what is it we want these clubs to offer our child and what are we hoping that our child will benefit by going to them and by participating and you know are they focused on their interests are they of anything in particular that you know might sort of draw them in and be of interest and I think that's the important thing that we need to you know remember that for our children they're not necessarily going to interpret and sort of decode what's going on automatically that might need explaining a little bit more fully and remembering that actually although it's with all good intention that we like to try and um, get our children involved we are decoding social rules in you know social situations in split seconds and for our neurodiverse children that is their hard labor so it might be that they're tired and that actually school has been enough for decoding that and extra clubs after school could just at this point in time be a step too far. So I would say don't discount them, but just consider what it is we're expecting our children to cope with and tolerate within that situation. OK, so... um 
Sorry, did you want to add anything then? Yeah, I was just I, I was just thinking actually I was going to just say, you know, so really um consider the right club. You know, if it's chess club and your your child's madly into chess, great. But if it's, you know, something that's more socially based and there's not necessarily an obvious structure, then it might be worth speaking to, you know, for example, I know children that have had great success through sort of cubs and, and scouts, but actually having sort of a structure to that can be really, really helpful. So you've kind of touched on my next question, um, which is many schools might suggest social activities like chess or Lego clubs within school time to support a child's sociability. Um, what are your experiences and thoughts on this? I think um, I think specific social teaching clubs um, can leave us in danger of thinking that we've addressed social social nurturing and social coaching and what we need to be thinking in terms of that whole um flexibility of thinking developing those flexible thinking schools skills transferring um sort of learned skills how can we put those incorporate those into everyday situations and so rather than sort of having you know a specific afternoon where it's kind of social club perhaps lego therapy or something like that that actually we are doing lots of work in transferring those skills and even lego therapy i'm just going to give a little um cautionary triangle with that because i um had a, a an ex a, an experience at an iep meeting in school so uh, supporting a, a planning meeting and the conversation was around the fact that this little boy um, had been uh, joined into the Tuesday afternoon Lego club. But actually, what happened was his um, experience of Lego was that that was his box at home that no one interfered with. And yeah. he had two brothers and his Lego box was in his bedroom and that was his thing to do his thing with. So yeah. of course then for our children then to be in school and be in a Lego therapy group, they do not automatically know that the social expectations of that experience of playing with Lego have changed. They've changed completely because he now does not have sole ownership over what happens with these Lego bricks and will be, you know, um, kind of get bad press if he tries to put that singular ownership over that experience. So I think, you know, we've got to make sure before we immerse our children into these experiences that they first of all have the tools and are equipped with the skills to be able to to participate appropriately. And they therefore need nurturing and coaching to do that. We can't just drop them into a social skills group and expect um, to cope with that new environment our children will need even more preparation for that than perhaps other children who are attending that social skills group and it may be um, more likely to succeed if 
that it's kind of based on a, a mutual interest. So maybe, you know, Pokemon cards or something like that, where there's some swapping and some dialogue that needs to go on just on a linear level rather than having to wait for lots of turn taking. So it might be that we need to do small steps, social skills experiences before we're ready to go to a social skills group, as it were. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that's um, I didn't even think about the Pokemon cards. That's a really good way to kind of start, isn't it? It's just a one-to-one swap, isn't it? Then? Yeah. Or, you know, one-to-one social experience rather than um, lots of other um, sort of involved, you know, involvements as well. And I, I think, um, you know, it's probably worth saying here as well that we mustn't forget that because this is such a tiring experience for our children that they very often do need um, recovery time. And I know um, Sarah Hendrick, an adult um, with autism, and she talks about the fact that she's got, you know, five sort of friends and her family members. And when she's had um, time with them, she needs maybe a maximum of two hours mixing. She needs at least a kind of hour's nap to recover. And I think that really helps us to think in terms of that. This is hard labour, social interaction, social communication, Social understanding for our children is their hard labour. Okay, um, so thank you for that. Finally, to round up everything that we've discussed today, what would your key points um, be to take away from our Social Tolerance podcast? If you could give me three or four. Yeah, I think um, I think we've kind of covered lots, haven't we? So we've talked about nurturing, We've talked about um, that uh, coaching our children, giving them lots of opportunities for experiencing social situations by modelling, by practising, by sort of running things through home. This is how this might be, you know, almost role playing some um, experiences if possible, you know, play cafes. Don't stop playing cafes just because our children on of that age or stage remember we're thinking very much about stage and thinking about how can we avoid those social hiccups how can we equip our children with that knowledge and what have we got um sort of in terms of our knowledge of our child so we can preempt and we can sort of prepare for the things that they might need the props that they might need And what about clubs? You know, consider the clubs, the right clubs that we want to consider. So I'm going to use um, a little uh, sort of, um, I can't remember what the word is when, uh, but anyway, I'm going to use the word plankton acronym. That's the word I'm looking for. So I'm going to use the word plankton because um, it's described actually, it's plankton as the deep superhero of the sea. So I think that's a great way to describe our children that very often they're little superheroes and they lie deep down in the sea and unless someone goes to the trouble to discover all their little um, hero bits then we're in danger of, of missing them and so if we think of plankton and we just need to think therefore of plan with knowledge and calmness to nurture and if we kind of decode that a little bit it just spells plankton 
So that's what we need to think of. We need to think of making sure that our children are um, really equipped to be the plankton, the super deep heroes of um, their social worlds. Fab. So thank you so much, Anne-Marie, for some amazing and insightful information and support. That brings us to the end of our podcast today, and I hope you've enjoyed listening. There will be more episodes of Sensational coming your way soon, and if you have a topic you would like to see us cover in the future, please email your thoughts and suggestions to webinars at withaslackgroup.co.uk. And if you're not already, follow us on our social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So thank you once again to Anne-Marie and bye for now. Thank you. Bye. Bye.